Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of A Girl in the Product World. I hope you all are well. I am beyond excited to bring you this episode uh, this time round because I've got someone who I think quite a lot of you might know. So he needs no introduction and he became a household name in 2016, but I'm going to go ahead and introduce him anyway. So as well as being a business owner and founder, hence his run to be Alan Sugar's business partner, he also has an extensive career in product, hence he is here with me today. He is the one and only apprentice candidate for season 12, Karthik Magasan. Karthik, Hello. Hey, hey, hey. My God, what an introduction. Am I, am I feeling superb right now? So thank you, Amna, for having me on, on your podcast. It is a great initiative. And might I say that, uh, you know, you are persistent. If nothing else, you reached out to me late last year. It's, you know, it's, it's the early part of 2023 when we record this. And late last year, you reached out and things didn't work out. We couldn't meet up. And then we rearranged for this year and you've come right back to Karthik. Come on, you promised me some time. Let's let's get get together. I said, okay, let's do this. So awesome. Hats off on that. Well, you responded, so it works it works both ways. So thank you very much <laughs> for, for getting that to me. Now the introduction continues because I, I want to make it very clear to the audience of, of why you're here with me on this podcast, right. which is dedicated to the product world. So after successfully implementing your business plan that you put forward onto the apprentice, Karthik is now the founder and CEO of eLifeGuru.com, which is a virtual consultation platform for expats around the world. Um, he also has many roles as a as an agile coach scrum master and project manager working for companies such as ANZ banking group or ANZ depending on where you're from um Sky which and most recently Jaguar Land Rover he also holds a bachelor degree in computer science and engineering from Anamalai University in India so Karthik it was a lovely surprise um, you know, when I kind of looked into you, um, cause I saw a lot of your posts actually on LinkedIn and you are from the product world, which is brilliant. Mm-hmm. It's why you're here. Um, so I'd love for you to put your journey out there in your own words. Sure, sure. Nice, nice little introduction there. But thank you very much for speaking so nicely about, about me. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Right. Okay. So my journey, um, Dave, I was born and raised in India. And, uh, you know, my, my dad uh, at that time was uh, in the Indian Air Force. So uh, how it used to work was, you know, mom, dad and my two sisters, we would get transferred from one Air Force base to the other. My dad would get posted out. And therefore, I'd have to change schools uh, every couple of years and I'd have to make new best friends every couple of years. And, you know, you grow up all over India and you grow up speaking a smattering of different languages because we speak 27 languages in India. Right. And I, I speak two uh, of those. Uh and then, you know, I guess that's what gave me my sunny personality. <laughs> and you have to make new best friends every so often. So back then, that was my introduction to sort of life, if you like, and being, being active and being being verbal, being vocal and out there, an extrovert. Uh, and from there, I went to university, computer science, came over to the UK to work, stayed here. And I guess my introduction to the to the product world started with my introduction to this thing called Agile, which is this way of, uh, I guess, product development, which 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 is based on the on rapid prototyping and you sort of work on the lean sort of uh, philosophy, which is about building something, measuring the feedback, giving it to the customer and then customer driven innovation. So build, measure, learn 
and then build the next version. So that's the, I got into product from the process perspective, if you like. So the process was agile and I started becoming an agile project manager, delivery manager, and you know what they call a scrum master. And then from there, I started going into the product world. So that was the way I evolved. So rather than from a pure product perspective, I started off from the process side, from the delivery side. And then by being in the delivery side, I could see the results that were coming out by following this methodology, uh, you know, the, the agile methodology and the lean sort of philosophy, lean product development. And then I said, well, that's cool. So why can't I use it for my own products? So I had a bit of an idea, applied to the apprentice, saw it on TV. I said, well, why not? Enough because on the on the apprentice you you realize after seeing the final cut that ah I could do that once you're in it then you realize well there's a lot of restrictions in place that I can't talk about which which make it so that it's not real life at the end of the day you know you only have so much time to film but in real life you have multiple chances to get things just right if you like as you know you're a product person too that got me into product yeah that's my journey I mean it's very interesting that you got about it in kind of the non-traditional route which was through agile into product normally you hear people do it the other way around which I find quite interesting now also when I kind of looked into your journey also you do you've always done a mix of agile coaching and being hands-on with your products as well and even building them um for example uh, the, the product that that you put forward um in for the apprentice um what's that about and how do you zone in and out so seamlessly and is that even possible so going from right into you know agile coaching and being hands-on and then kind of going into the family right i see what you're saying so putting on the multiple hats so on, yeah. on the one side having that the technical hat of delivering the product and i guess on the other side putting on the hat of of the product manager itself exactly. so deciding what to do and, and why to do it as opposed to deciding how to do and how much of it you could do. Exactly. Those are the two different hats, aren't they? So when you delivery as well as product. Well, I think the way the world has evolved now, and if you look at the most successful companies as well in the world, they all stem from people who actually did the coding themselves. So if it was software companies, if you like, or did the prototypes themselves, if it's hardware companies. So they actually made their first clothes in case of Zara, which is the biggest clothing brand in the world. Or in terms of Facebook, it's, you know, Mark Zuckerberg actually coded Facebook himself along with his friends. So the it, it almost came as if people who were in the delivery of the product at that point started thinking, how can I do this better? Or they were doing the process and they said, okay, well, how, what, what do we focus on in terms of the product? I think that marriage is now very, very key. So those days where you had a person whose only job was to go out and meet the customers and get the feedback and, and come in. And, and then you had somebody else who this person would then tell, hey, I found out that you need, you know, the, the red color button works better than the green color button. And then, and then the person who's actually delivering the work says, okay, all you want me to do is make the green color button. I'll do that. You decide what to do. I'll decide how to do it. And I think that division, it's okay in big companies, in multi-million dollar companies where the, where the scope is so huge that you need a dedicated sort of product team and you need a, a process team or a delivery team. In startups and scale-ups even, in small, small, tiny teams, you'll have to have where you, you know, situations where the person doing the work is also the person figuring out what is it that they need to do. So if you're talking tiny startup which is the experience I've got as as a doer, if you like. I did my startup, I experimented with it, and then it closed. It didn't it didn't scale. I mean, you could say that better help now with Prince Harry as its ambassador is what Karthik's idea was, right? Mm-hmm. Find help online, and you could also do it in multiple languages and so on and so forth. But where's better help now with the backing it's got? And you know, my idea was tried and cried a little bit, but that was that. But that's what you do in life, right? You, not every idea is a big success, but you give it a try and you give it a go, and that's what you go with. 
So yeah, John, do I, yeah, sorry, go on. No, you carry on, please. Yeah, so I just wanted to finish finish that little bit for your, for your question, which is, yes, I do believe that uh, in, in cases where it's a big scale setup, you might have the situation where you, or you probably still do, where you have the product side of people and you have the delivery or the process side of people. I think if you go to the stats, early sort of uh, startup phase, you'll have to have the people doing the work also be the people who meet with customers and decide what to do, why to do, so on and so forth. That's what do you find, if I may ask you that? You're in product. <laughs> um, so what Look do I find around. in terms of the different hats that you have to wear? Yes. And, and in terms of what is it that you, what, how the setup is normally. So in, in where you are, you're a product person, right? Yeah. So obviously you have a delivery team as well, but uh, is that how you've always seen it everywhere? I mean, it's so for, definitely for the bigger companies that I've worked for, there is definitely that separate functions that you have. So, you know, you have the product team who will, you know, work as, as, as lean as possible but then for the bigger scale projects that involve the big marketing teams the sales teams then yes you would have that delivery function but i would say even in in larger companies if they've got that mindset of collaborative work you're still working together a lot so it it, it it's not that case of you know you want that green button you guys over there go and go and build it although sometimes that can be the case but there was always that ability to go and speak to that person who's asking for it and negotiate with them, ask them why they're doing something. And that was a, a culture thing. We were able to go and say, look, you know, you, I know you've said this in the business requirements, but do you think that's really the right thing to do? And often you'll find they'll turn around and say, well, do you think there's a better way to do it? I'm willing to listen. So I think sometimes it's not so much about the scale of the company. It really is about the mentality that is being created and that culture that's being created mm-hmm. to allow people to be able to think and to be able to suggest um, for example you know whenever I've managed any of my teams even now I say look guys you know I know I'm I'm the product manager yes I'm the one who is owning the priority or whatever it might be but there is no reason for you guys to come to me and say look I'm, I think we can do it better this way or if my if my designer comes to me and says, look, I used a product here and I think this feature should be a priority, you know, I will absolutely give them that that ability to, to come to me and say that. That's the kind absolutely. of culture that I want to create, right? Yeah. It, and that's what it's about. So I think really for me, it's, yes, you've got to wear different hats, but I think everyone can collaboratively wear those different hats. Um, of course, they are experts within the area. You know, I'm the one who says the what, they go and figure out the how because they are the experts. Um, but I think it's just a case of everyone working together, regardless of the scale of the company. Nice. Yeah. So that you avoid those silos within the within the project team, if exactly. you like. Exactly. Nice. Okay. So good. There you go. Some synergy straight away. Yeah. <laughs> now I want to explore the agile coach side uh, mm-hmm. of things a little bit more because I always find it very fascinating that we have agile coaches and what I've seen. I guess throughout my career is agile coaches getting very stuck into the actual work mm-hmm. and it almost turns into like a bit of an admin role when we know it's it's a lot more than that it's it's about the people I want to ask you because you've held you've held many roles within the agile space and, and being an agile coach what does it actually mean to you and what does it mean in the product world also to be an agile coach 
Sure. Okay. And as, as you said, you know, you have to be very careful if, if you're an agile coach, especially you're just not an academic agile coach who's got these arm, you know, arm, arm degrees, the length of your arm. Uh, the only, only sort of couple of qualifications I have, I'm a, I'm a computer science engineer. So I started my life as a computer science engineer, as a programmer, then rose up through the ranks and I've got, I'm a certified scrum master and that's it. You know, I don't have, uh, you know, two or three coaching degrees or four or five agile degrees. I've learned, as I say in my interviews, is through the elbows in the mud, through the trenches, if you like, and through learning and doing agile. That's, that's where my sum total of experience comes in. It's not by passing multiple choice exams, but, you know, to, to get noticed by, by the hiring manager, looks like it, it's nice to have those little keywords at the, at the back of your CV. So agile coaching is, is very interesting because where I am now in, in Jaguar Land Rover, we, you know, we're, we're big team it's one of the biggest agile transformations in in the uk and it's a hardware company right it's an automobile industry and i come from a software background and quite a lot of the coaches do come from a software background because now you're starting to see agile as this newfangled thing that these startups in silicon valley did to something that every software company does to now the government of the uk in a big way has taken up agile transformation it's going through agile and and all its sort of, you know, I guess, flavors. And you've got traditionally non-agile companies such as banks becoming agile. Now you've got hardware companies such as automobile industries becoming agile. So what does a coach do then? You know, because that, that forces, it, it has forced me to go back into the basics of what agile is in terms of, you know, think less, you build the trust within the squad and you ensure there's transparency, transparency and visibility within the squad. Maybe you're there to help each other out. And you have the mentality of a decision is only as long as say a week or two weeks. So you're only wrong for two weeks before you can correct yourself. Right, you're not wrong for long. The whole idea is bad news early in Agile. And it forced me to go back into the very basics of uh, of Agile. So it's one of the things I said on The Apprentice, for example, like what Bruce Lee used to say, you should become like water, put water in a bottle, it becomes a bottle, put water in a cup, it becomes a cup. So he would talk about Kung Fu in that very, very Zen-like uh, wordage, if you like, right? And And I sort of started to get into that mindset in terms of Agile and as a coach which is I stopped thinking about actually practically implementing it because I would leave that to the people I'm coaching. You figure out how to implement it. My job is to just give you the, the signpost and then you accept that coaching, if you like. You accept the, the philosophy of it and then you mold it into however, however it works best for you. So I'm, gra- I'm grateful. Not everybody has. I've seen people who haven't. But in my case, I'm grateful to have evolved into that style of, I guess, management and coaching where I lay out the framework, I discuss the benefits and I lay out, you know, I guess different options. And then I am able to step back and give the freedom to the people, to my coaches to come in and fill that up with, with their ideas and run with it rather than being prescriptive, which I've seen other coaches do as well. And, and, you know, sometimes that works well, sometimes it doesn't, but I just feel that's not the way it should be done because, you know, as a coach, you lay out the basic philosophy and then you let that person fill it in with their unique personality or the group of people that you're coaching, like the squad or the team that you're coaching to fill it in with their unique perspective and, and run with it. Because at the end of the day, it's their life. It's, it's their work. Your job is to show them the way. They figure out how to use, how to run with it. And where, no, that's, that, that's brilliant. And I, I like that philosophy of you are giving them the freedom to do that. And that's the whole point of autonomy, right? And I think one of the things that Agile really does try and teach us is 
you will have autonomy. Um, use your resources around you, but also use, I guess, use your common sense as well, right? So yeah, I mean, there will be practical advice once yeah. in a while. There will be practical advice because I've done this so many times before. I would have said, you know, there's a team in the past when they had an yeah. obstacle or when they had an impediment. This is how they would deal with it. This, that, you know, so on and so forth. Or you know, how do you do your planning meetings? How do you estimate how big a piece of work is? How do you know you'll get it done in three months or three yeah. weeks and so on and so forth? You'll give some practical advice. But by and large, the, the underlying philosophy would be, this is the reason you would do it. This is how people have done it in the past. How do you want to do it? And then we inspect and adapt from there. And I wonder what's, what's been the best use of your coaching style? Where have you seen it? What's, can you give me an example of where you've really seen the fruits of your labor with coaching your team in that way? Well, what I would say is... Um, let me let me pick one. So, uh, you know, because this is a public discourse, it's going to go out in, in public. I, I, you know, I won't take any names of, of clients past and present oh. and so on and so forth out of privacy and so on and so forth. But what I would say <clears throat> is I have seen, um, you could say, in, in one of my past clients, the number of people leaving the workforce come down over the time I was with them, simply because the workplace became an unstifled workplace and a better place to do work in so work became fun work became light not a heavy place to work in you're not soldiering on when you come into work you come there you come there to have fun your you know your agile ceremonies your stand-ups are all posted colorful sticky notes on the walls or in the covid days it's like sat at home but it's you know online you use some kind of online platform and you're discussing these tickets and you're having fun you're joking around that's when you know that you've made a difference because work has become happy whereas earlier planning the work, tracking the work, presenting the work and learning from the work for the next cycle used to be sort of a heavy laden, you know, heavy, heavy foot kind of affair. Mm-hmm. Whereas now it's happy and joyous. And that has happened in, in, you know, a few of my previous clients, including the current one, I think. And uh, you know, just the number of resignations that come into your boxes, the attrition of people and people who give feedback to you saying, oh, I'm just so happy to be here right now. This is how agile should be. And I've got that feedback. And that for me is like five stars. I'm very happy to hear that. And I think that, it, that it's it's a very nice feeling when you're able to turn things around like that. doesn't happen every time because sometimes <laughs> the system, it's just you against the system as well. Sometimes because like you're giving out all these values, but you do have to understand there is a cultural bias within the within wherever you are in at that point from before. <clears throat> and this is how we've always done it. We have this command and control approach. We talk the talk about empowering the people, but we don't walk the walk. So like we talk the talk about empowering people, but we still want those reports at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, we still want to have that command and control little, you know, yanking the chain of the of the people who work for us. And um, it's, it's not enough just having Karthik with his enthusiasm to overcome all that, you know, institutional bias that's there for command and control. So it doesn't work every time. You need to bring people on the journey with you. And sometimes they're not ready. Sometimes they're not ready. I think that's a very, very important point because I've spoken to many agile coaches within, you know, my my personal career um, when I've been at roles or outside of work within my network. And I find that a lot where they come into a role, they're very enthusiastic, you know, they've, they've seen a team, they're struggling and that kind of gets them ticking and they know they want to try and, and turn that around for them, but they are hit by perhaps the politics, perhaps how things are being run elsewhere in the company that's really just bringing it down. So how how do you deal with that? Because if that was me, I would think, you know, kind of, I guess I'm I'm failing. I'm here to to make these people happy and enjoy their job. How do you deal with that? And where do you 
draw the line of, you know what, Karthik, this is not for me. You know, that I, I can't change these people because of all the external factors. But how do you get to that point? What kind of things do you look out for? Okay. So I'm going to be very candid here and being very honest, as I normally am. So there's, there's two things that's happening here. One, I'm a consultant. So I've, I work on the basis of short to medium term contracts, three mm-hmm. or six months. And depending on a few things, A, if they like me, B, if they have the money for it, they extend me or they don't. Right. right? So it is something that pays the bills. And, you know, when you don't have a contract, nobody's paying the bills. So should I have a job where I'm not very happy as opposed to having no job? So that is a train of thought. I am a human being. I do have bills to pay. So that is one thing that is running. And on the other side, am I happy at the job and I'm making the difference and, you know, all that rah-rah good stuff change? Yes, that is very important too. I mean, I've never been so depressed at a job that I've, you know, I've, I've, uh, and I've kicked it away saying, I'm so depressed. I'm not able to make a change because all this institutional bias and this old world command and control, I'm going to give up the job and be jobless. No, give me the job, pay the bills. I'll be very happy. But so that's to one side. But the other side is I, I go into a job to make a difference because I know if I make a positive difference, I'll get good feedback and they'll probably keep me on longer and give some good feedback. And I made a difference to people's lives. So, you know, there is a selfish aspect to it, but there's also a little bit of the, I want to do good for the world and give back to the world aspect of it. Now, if you take um, some of the situations where I've been, and I've, you know, I've, I've told you this quite, quite honestly, haven't I, where I haven't gone in and become as successful as I'd want to be in transforming the place simply because the place wasn't ready for it at that point. So I'll go in, I'll be just the same as I am in every job. In some roles, it'll just be a click and a synergy between me and the environment and, you know, the office and the people and their philosophy and their mindset for them to, for for us to just click. And then two plus two becomes more than two and you have synergy and change happens. In other places, it'll be me with my sort of mindset and energy and, and, and I guess philosophy, and then it, it'll just meet against a brick wall. Because again, they'll do, they'll talk the talk of, of agile or being thinking in terms of empowering the people and removing the obstacles. But the underlying bit will always be micromanagement. You'll hear about the mm-hmm. term micromanagement. You'll hear it from your squad members saying, they'll talk all that, but at the end, they'll want the report at the end of the day. They don't want to see the outcomes. They're focused on the outputs, yeah. right? The output is that little Excel sheet with what everybody's been working on. The outcome is, I don't know, you know, a, a software that works for the customer or a piece of hardware that, that makes the customer delighted or happy. But they're not focused on the outcomes. They're only focused on the outputs, and then it, all of a sudden, I'm not coaching just the teams and the squads. I'm starting to coach up and further up. But then there is a ceiling. That's not what you are hired to do. And then what do you do? Right? Like, okay. Then you got to realize, then the red light starts to flicker. It's like, if I push a little bit more, I might push myself out of this job. Mm-hmm. So let me do the best that I can with the people that I have, keep them happy. But I will. But I know that I'm not making an institutional level change because I am not empowered to do it. And, you know, that, that's where I'm a bit practical in that sense. Okay. I don't say, okay, I'm going to give up and walk away. No, no, no. I'll keep the job. But <laughs> I, I know how far I can go with it now, you know. Uh, I appreciate your honesty there. And I think it really does resonate with a lot of people with, you can only know so much during the interview process. Um, I know people who even visit the office um, or even, you know, they'll, They'll say as part of my decision making process of you know if they receive an offer, I want to spend a day or a week at the office just to see what it's like. But you you'll only know so much until you actually get into the role and find out what the reality is, right? And I think that's becoming more of a thing where people are just accepting that that you know a, a job interview or when you go and talk to colleagues at that place. 
they'll only tell you so much. You'll only um, know so much. Otherwise, every exactly. job interview, if, if you could have found out what's happening on the inside, you'd be like, yeah. well, you know, that's not yeah. what you told me on the interview. <laughs> yeah. And I think even for employees, like, you know, when I've had new joiners join and, you know, we, we might be in a bit of a, a rough patch. I think they kind of feel that responsibility to not almost be completely honest because you 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 think you know this person's coming they're new you don't want to bring them down so early on um you know you want to give them a bit of motivation as well so i think even with the people around what's going mm. on they almost want to kind of keep bit of a bit of a good thing going bit of, bit of a thing yeah. let me let me ask you let me ask you this what do you because you've spoken to you know a lot more people than i have in this sort of line if you like right in this podcast thing so have you found that um, when you go for an interview, they always say it's not just the candidate being interviewed by the prospective employer. It's the other way around. It's also you interviewing them to find out if it's the right place for you. Now, it's nice to say that and it's nice to listen to it. But how often do you have a million pound trust fund and you don't need the job and you just want to interview them to find out if that's a good place for you? Because you don't know when the next interview is going to be. And given the current climate, you don't know when the next job is going to be. So, isn't it rather a case of you selling yourself than you trying to get them to sell themselves to you? Yeah, it's, I mean, I have seen a lot about this that, you know, the the candidate should have the right to almost have it almost as 50-50 split. Yes, I'll be completely honest. When I go for interviews, my priority is to sell myself, to sell my experience, because, you know, once you can take that off, I think that kind of gives you then a gateway of asking questions so that will always be the priority of let mm. me sell myself let me make sure they like me um but i think as i've gotten a little bit older in my career i do take that opportunity now to ask questions that i wouldn't have asked when i was younger perhaps mm. uh, because i think as you also grow up you you realize what's important to you and i think you st- you can start to gauge people's answers you're you're able to judge better as well so when someone's saying something to you you can almost see through the mist sometimes and right. y- you can come to a bit of a judgment yourself obviously it won't be 100% correct but I think your your gut plays a part in that as well because you've gone through X amount of roles because you've gone through so many experiences when you get to a certain point in your career I think you're able to make that judgment yourself and I think this is a reason also why I advocate so much for people to move around and get experiences from different places because you, it, it all just helps to gather that well-roundedness judgment that you can then go on to make further on in your Absolutely. career and for other reasons as well. So I, I do find now that as I've, I've gotten older, a bit more mature in my career, I do ask those questions, but yes, the priority is always let me sell myself. Isn't it? I mean, yes. there's, a, there's always another candidate, but is there always another Absolutely. employer giving you an interview? So, exactly. Yeah. No, exactly. It's a bit of that. Very, very good point. Right. I am going to take a bit of a turn. Now, okay. I mentioned that you have been on The Apprentice and mm-hmm. a lot of people know you from this. And I want to know what made you apply to it? Okay, what made me apply? Well, I've been a bit of an extrovert, haven't I, all my life? A little so, bit. 
Yeah. And the way you saw me on screen as well in, in The Apprentice has been, you know, out there in front of you, in your face, that kind of guy. And all all, all my, so I guess, my little life, I've been the kind of person who's been like the fine arts secretary or the school pupil leader and so on and so forth. So when I saw The Apprentice and I saw you know, a reality TV show, and this was before I knew realistically what is a you know, reality TV show. Like, okay, watching TV from back like in 2012. I came to the UK in 2005. Mm-hmm. So I've been here about, you know, I guess what? 17 years-ish, 16, 17 years, half my life, more or less, right? So I'm like, okay, so what do we do now? Uh, I saw that and I said, I could do that. I think I could do that. And I went in for it more out of fun and, you know, just just for the kicks. I said, okay, you know what? I'm just going to walk in and see what happens. And the next really? thing, you know, like, you know, how many monobros do you have? And you say, like, well, give them one line about the monobro, you know? And they're like, the next thing, you know, we're like, hey, would you, we would like to invite you to be on the show. We're like, oh, yes, that's the way. So, and then, of course, I had this idea. So then I had to put it down and make a business plan. And you've got to submit a business plan. So they do want to tick those boxes at the BBC about we are a serious business show. But, hey, mm-hmm. it is a TV show at the end of the day as well. There's only so much you can do that is captured and makes it fun. But nobody wants a boring TV show. Business is boring. But real business is boring. So TV show has to be exciting. So, you know, there are some compromises that are made. But, you know, you go in there and you go in with guns blazing. You have a great time. And, uh, yeah, you know, you come out of it. And the next thing you know, hey, Celebrity Big Brother, do you want to go in there? <laughs> okay. Go in there. <laughs> and here you are, five years later, talking to Amna Hussein on a podcast. And there we go. <laughs> it opens all sorts of doors, doesn't it? <laughs> Oh, I love it. But I mean, yes, you you went, you know, you say you went into it for the kicks and whatever, but I'm sure there is that serious element because, you know, you are at the end of it getting some sort of investment. Um, But there's also that self-belief that you have. And I think you do find people who do have very good self-belief, but you in particular, you know, you you mentioned you're an extrovert and I think that's one thing, but you, you genuinely have this self-belief about yourself it's you know it's your it's your demeanor of how you carry yourself as well it must take a lot of that to go and do something like the apprentice you know I've been on tv before and that was just an hour you know it was on a game show that's so it's it's very different to people seeing you week in week out judging you having their opinions about you you know I know social media wasn't well it was pretty pretty big back then but probably not as cruel as it is now um what how do you get that self-belief like what is it about you where does it come from oh well i got a fan man yay (laughs) (laughs) so what it is is i mean i guess i did a lot of self-development as well Hmm. um and um well i'll share this go on i'll share this so back in the day okay Mostly back in the day. So when I was, you know, young and, you know, experimenting and, eh, you know, here and there in the dating scene, if you like and all that. One of the things was I was a shy guy, right? I mean, in terms of the, the ladies aspect of it. You? Right? Really? Yeah. We're gonna, I'd be like, I'd say the wrong thing. And it's a different right. culture from India to the UK. It's all Bollywood yeah. and soppy stuff. And the UK <laughs> is like, that's not how we speak to the ladies out here. That kind of stuff, right? So I'm like, straight as, as you come in, I was like, well, no, that's a bit too hardcore for us out here, Karthik, and all that. So I had to learn the hard way. So I wouldn't say shy. I would just say um, misaligned. 
if you like, right. misaligned, misaligned a little bit. So I had to align myself and I went through these development courses of, you know, say what you feel like and let the self, the self is always coming through and have congruence in your thoughts, words and actions. So don't say something and think something else. And I sort of started thinking, that's not, not just for the dating scene. That's also for like interviews and interactions, right? So when you have thoughts, congruence in your thoughts, words and actions, then what you're seeing you automatically start feeling the self, the self is always coming through. You know, you get that feeling that somebody's not being honest or somebody's yeah. being very honest or somebody likes you, or somebody doesn't like you. I think that is the self coming through. No matter what you do, the micro behaviors, the twitches in the eyes, the shake of the hands, people are perceiving it even without knowing what mm. you're, you're, you know, you're basically an information radiator and everybody is an information radiator for you. So when I started going down that, that sort of rabbit hole and going through sort of online seminars from, you know, personality coaches, if you like, and people, nothing that I paid for. I pay for mostly nothing. Anyway, YouTube is free. <laughs> hey, I'm Indian and British. I'm, no, money doesn't, I like money coming in, not leaving me, but I'm over confessing now. So what, <laughs> so what I'm, yeah. So I guess at, at the end of that, what, to round it up would be that affected my personal personality development as well, if you like. So being happy with who I am, and I am good enough the way I am. And things are funny just because I think they're funny to say them yeah. rather than saying something and then looking with that slight micro expectation to see if you find it funny. And then we all laugh. Just those ever so slight changes in the, the behaviors and the perceptions. But initially, I used to do it consciously. Then, you know, it became unconscious uh, competence. So it just became part of who I am. So, you know, I say what I want, when I want, I do what I want, when I want, within the, within the boundaries of ethics and morality and decency, of course. But, you know, you are who you are. And then that's the Karthik that's, that's there in front of you today. That's the Karthik that came on TV. Maybe that's why they like that Karthik. Like this guy goes out there and, you know, we just want to see what he does because we don't know what he does. You know, he does what mm -hmm. he wants to do. And that's the kind of person that makes good TV, I guess. <laughs> good TV. No, but I think, sorry, that made me chuckle there. But no, I think you said something there, which is you are enough. And that's it's very true and the fact that you've made that part of yourself your whole being is very powerful and, it, and clearly you know people people like it and but also you've got this acceptance of you that people might not like it but that's okay and I think if if more of us did that it's a lot I of think, inner engineering isn't it? it's a lot of things yeah. inside your mind and your and your, and your body where you're like good enough is good enough yeah. and if you think about the agile way of working good enough is good enough it doesn't have to be inch perfect and, you know, what you say is, is funny and is, is interesting just because it comes from you yeah. and, and so on and, and so forth. So you just become comfortable in yourself, basically. You just yeah. come, become comfortable in your own skin as opposed to thinking about what other people think of you. And that's, that's magical because as soon as you're comfortable in yourself, this magic seems to happen because wherever you go, you'll be like, I mean, I'll tell you this. I've got friends from India who are shy because of their their perception of their race that if they go in as two Indian or three Indian boys in the queue to a nightclub, they would be perceived as, they'll be accepted, but they will be perceived as, oh, those Indian boys, right? Yeah. Slightly, you know? This is like yeah. back from the dating days, if you like, right? Yeah. And be like, no, no, I always need like one or two white guys with me just just to make sure that we, mm -hmm. are, we are Western enough, like we are acceptable in this, in this environment, Right, we are just not those two people sitting on those table over there, and that kind of stuff. And I used to be like that because you know I was an immigrant, wasn't I? And then I settled, and I became a local. I became a British citizen. I sort of, I started getting the acceptance of the society, and I started making these changes within myself. 
And I sort of realized, yeah, I am who I am and I'm happy just the way I am. And then the acceptance automatically came to me. I don't have to go seeking it. It just, you know, it was just there. So, yeah, but it's, it's a deep concept. I right? didn't click. I mean, I, I'm Even now, I'm not able to word it exactly uh, the way I feel it. But it's, you know, it's it's being, not doing, if you like. You know, just being, not doing. That's very know. interesting. And do you find that at, in the workplace as well? You know, you just meant you mentioned the the nightclub scene where you know indian guys go and they're perceived as you know those indian oh, like guys. those three chinese people like oh those three yeah yeah we accept them but we know they are slightly different but we accept them you know yeah and it's like that, that difference thing yeah. is always there but you wouldn't say that about a, a line of boys all looking chinese in china or a line of boys all looking Absolutely. you know black in africa or a line of boys all looking white here in the uk you wouldn't yeah. notice any one different from the other but Mentally, you would make a note of those three who are Chinese looking or black looking or Indian, because we are human beings. They're just looking different to the general population in the area. Same thing in India. If you go find two white people in a queue to a nightclub, you'd be like, oh, my God, celebrities, <laughs> white people. So, <laughs> you know, it, it happens everywhere. It happens everywhere. So, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, what were you saying? Um, so that, that perception is one. But did you mean at the workplace? At the workplace, yeah, because I, I certainly have seen, you know, if there is anyone who does look different, um, I've worked, I've been fortunate to work with so many smart people who are from different races, different ethnicities, and you do notice that shyness about them because they they're aware. I of the slight difference. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess in in a in a workplace, what would you do? How would you try and put yourself out there to get? to gain that acceptance is it that you just need to put out self-belief and help that hope that it resonates with people but what would you say to perhaps someone younger someone with less experience how would they get that acceptance in the workplace okay so i have seen people from countries i'll give an example somebody say from brazil and they've got a very strong brazilian accent because they you know they speak the language of portuguese in brazil mm-hmm. And uh, most people think Brazilians speak Brazilian, but there's no language called Brazilian. They speak Portuguese in Brazil, right? Uh, and uh, a <laughs> little bit of trivia. So, <laughs> so they've got a very strong sort of Portuguese accent, if you like, from coming from Brazil. And uh, But despite that, they hold their own in meetings and they say what they want. Then I see people from, say, China or India or other countries. They have that accent. They have that, you know, uh, slightly uh, a different way of speaking English, if you like, mm-hmm. different usage of words. And But they still hold their own. And it's their self-belief that is coming through rather than anything else that, that you know, uh, that sort of smooths over these sort of rough edges that they, that they have, that they might have in terms of word usage, in terms of vocabulary, in terms of pronunciation and so on and so forth. It's just the self-belief that actually comes through. So in broken English, I have seen people hold meetings and, mm. and sort of, uh, you know, hold their own and get the respect because the self is always coming through. So if you believe something is is useful because just because you say it and you think it's worth it, other people will believe that. And it's also called like, I, I call this law of state transference, which means whatever you feel, the other person feels. So if you start feeling uncomfortable, the other person slowly start feeling uncomfortable without even knowing why. And if you feel overly confident, then that just resonates onto the other person. They start getting confident in you without knowing why. You you seem to know what you're talking about. Okay, yeah, very like you know the voice at the back of the car when you're going to a party is it go left or right? Somebody says go left. It's like <laughs> nobody knows why, but okay, we go left. You that is it, yeah. what I'm talking about. So it's not practical. You can't dissect. You can dissect it if you go psychological enough on it, but otherwise it's just that force of nature, if you like. And if you get that inside you, there's you know you will be happy in life. You may not succeed all the time. Nobody, nobody will, but at least you'll be happy with yourself. Otherwise, you're always doing the mental maths, 
always doing this mental calculation. What should I do? What should I say? How should I say it? And what kind of life is that? That's the tightrope walk of the century then, isn't it? I'd rather live free and see what happens. I love that, Karthik. Love it. Oh my um, God, it's turned into something else now, hasn't it? It really has. A, a psychological God. discussion about okay. life values and philosophy. Yeah, a bit of a counselling session as well. <laughs> <It's great. laughs> right, so we're going to now enter the final part of this chat, which is quite fun because I've not done something like this before and I thought you'd be the, the perfect person to do it with first. So it's a quick fire question round where oh, I'm going to hit you with a series of questions and you were going to say to me the first thing that pops into your head. Mm-hmm. You ready? Okay, let's go for it. Let's try it. Right. <laughs> Scrum or Kanban? Uh, Kanban. Okay. Current book you're reading? Uh, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. What is your dream job? Um, TV host. Host for my own TV show. That'd be nice. Ooh, okay. And if you could have dinner with anyone from the digital or tech world, dead or alive, who would it be? Uh, it'll be the guy who wrote the Lean Startup, Eric Ries. It'll be him. He's alive and he does sort of seminars and stuff, but I like the way he thinks. I like his seminars, the Lean Startup, about how do you measure, build, measure, learn. So I'd like to have a dinner with him. Yeah. Cool. And what would your advice be to the younger Karthik we met on The Apprentice in a few words? What, five years ago, Karthik? I wasn't that young, was I? I mean, I wasn't that older now. So uh, the advice. Yeah, yeah, okay. (laughs) So the advice would be. Calm down and don't talk yourself out of a good situation, which I did many a time on The Apprentice. I would have been safe. I would have gone through the finals or at least the semifinals of the final five if I had kept my big mouth shut and been calm because what I did not realize till afterwards that they liked me and that I was good TV and all these are factors before somebody lets you go. It's not just the bad task. It's not just the failed task. But at that point, in that situation, inside that pressure cooker, inside that make-believe world, losing a task was the biggest thing. And try as I might, I tried to, I talked myself out of that boardroom and into the taxi. That's what happened. If I had just kept quiet and said, yep, it's what happened, but you know, I'm here to do a good job, I think I might have just lived and stayed on till at least the final five, if not, if not longer. That's what I would have told myself. Because you're Karthik, you will accept that as a few words. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for the backhanded compliment. (laughs) Love it. Okay. Right. This one's really interesting. Lord Sugar or Karen Brady? (laughs) Uh, Lord Sugar for a cup of tea, Karen Brady for a glass of wine. I'll I'll let that speak for itself. All right. All right. Lord Sugar (laughs) or Claude? Uh, Claude. Claude, certainly. It'll be nice to talk to him because I've already got him for a, the other guy for a, for a cup of tea. So, Claude, it is. Fair enough. Chat. Why not? Oh, well, thank you so much, Karthik. That is the end of my questions. It has been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Amna. Glad you had a Glad you had a good time. I'm not sure if this is what you thought you signed up for when you reached out a few months ago, but you have it now. I, the- I didn't. <laughs> I, I feel like I've just spoken to somebody about my who's going to write my sort of autobiography or biography, you know? So like I've given you my life's lessons and then somebody could just write a book about this is what Karthik is. <laughs> Very good business idea. Maybe we should chat after this. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Karthik. 
and I wish you all the success in the world with your future endeavors and hope to see you around with your new TV show. Okay, hopefully. Fingers crossed it happens soon. (laughs) Thank you, Amna. Thanks a lot. Thank you.